we name our children, there usually is a reason, and it's usually a, a big deal. Um, what I want you to notice this morning in the, fir- in the first chapter of Luke is that God chooses the names of two unborn infants, John and Jesus. These two birth accounts in Luke, as far as I can tell, and I quizzed our pastors on this, and I spent a lot of time looking this week, but these are the only two stories in the Bible where God dictates to the parents what the children shall be named. So let's look first at Luke 1, 11 through 13. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. Then turn just a few verses down to uh, Luke 1, verses 30 through 31. But the angel said to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Now, why is it significant that God chooses the names for John and Jesus? Well, first of all, the very fact that God gives names to these babies reveals to us that names are important. Names matter. You know why names matter? Because people matter. Names are significant because people matter. Individual people are significant. You know, sin in our lives leads us to clump people together in in large groups or categories. And when we do that, it empowers us to to hate large group of people or to make sweeping generalizations about large groups of people all at one time. But grace always leads us to call people by their name. When When we acknowledge that people actually have names, they become human beings to us. That's why the Bible is full of genealogies. I know for a lot of us, you get into those genealogies and you just skip through it, but the names matter because those names are people and people matter to God. Now notice that God provides names for these two babies in Luke 1 while they are still in the womb. You know what that means? It means that a six-week-old fetus is a person. And God has already thought of that person's name long before he or she is born. And God speaks of this truth to to David in the 139th Psalm. David says, you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days of my life were ordained and written in your book before one of them came to be. You see, our contemporary culture has bought into a lie. Abortion clinics tell young women every day that the six-week-old fetus forming in their womb is nothing but a microscopic blob, that it's really not a person until much later. In fact, they will actually take an ultrasound machine and they will go over the young lady's abdomen and they'll find just a speck of scar tissue or something that, that literally is a blob, and they'll, they'll put it over the top of that, and they'll turn the screen and say, that's, that's all that it is. It's just a blob. It's just a speck. That's a lie. I have an ultrasound picture of our fourth that's on the way just a few weeks beyond six, just a few days beyond six weeks, and it's a baby. It looks just like a baby at 15 weeks or 30 weeks, just smaller. 
You see, Luke also testifies that these abortion clinics are wrong for another reason. Because the baby is a person when God gives them a name and God gives them a name at conception, if not before. With that in mind, consider this statistic. 50 million babies have been aborted since Roe versus Wade. According to what we learn in Luke 1, every one of those fetuses was a person with a name. That's taking the total number of Jews massacred in the Holocaust and multiplying that number times 10. I heard Kay Warren, Rick Warren's wife, say on the radio this week that by 2024, there'll be an estimated 40 million children orphaned from the AIDS pandemic. Every one of those children has a name. And every one of those children was known by God while they were formed in their mother's womb. Don't ever lose sight of the fact that people have names and those names matter and those lives matter. See, our universal connection with every person who has ever lived and every person who is alive right now and every person that will ever live is this, that every one of us at one point was an unborn, living, squirming, forming child of God that was thought about, intentioned, and named by our Heavenly Father. You know, God doesn't regularly reveal his chosen name for us by sending one of his messengers to our parents like he did with Mary and Joseph and Zachariah and Elizabeth. But our name is never insignificant. God knows our names, God gave us names, and we might be, that we might be purposeful and significant in this life. You know, the name John comes from the Hebrew word Johanan, and it means gracious God. John's life purpose is spelled out by Gabriel to his parents in Luke 1, 16, 17. He says, many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You see, John's whole life is designed to bear witness to this name to fulfill the function of this name that God gave him, John. Gracious God, the gracious nature of God. John will prepare the way for people to receive the grace of God through the Savior of the world. Now notice that nobody in Zechariah or Elizabeth's family was named John. If you read the rest of the story, it, it gets kind of comical in a way because, you know, Zechariah gets this message and he says, I'm an old man, Elizabeth, old as dirt, and we've been trying to have you know, kids for years, I mean, I need some proof that this is actually gonna happen. And of course, Gabriel says, I am the messenger of the Lord and it will be as I have said, but you're not gonna say another word until this child was born. And of course, then the child is born and the whole community, all the families gather around saying, well, what are you gonna name this child? And of course, Zachariah hasn't said a word. And Elizabeth says, well, we're gonna name him John. And all the family and everyone in the community is like, John, where'd you get that from? I mean, you don't have anybody in your family tree named John. And of course, Zachariah is going crazy and he can't talk, so he symbols to give him something to write on and he writes his name will be John, at which point he's allowed to speak. The name is really significant, but it's not a family name. You see, God gives this unborn child a new name. And it's not that it's not a family name. Here's the point. The point is that the child's identity will be defined by God's intentions for his life. Don't miss this. The child's identity will be defined by God's intentions for this child's life. As I understand the Bible, every single human life should be defined by God's intentions for that life. 
That's our God-given true name. Have you ever, have you ever considered the possibility, and I, I've been thinking about it a lot this week, have you ever considered the possibility that some of us, to some extent, may be living under a false identity? If we were born into unbelieving families, it's possible that God's name for us is not actually the same as the name we're currently associated with. Think about it, we are all first children of God. God knows us long before our parents do. Given what we learn in Luke 1, I think it's safe to say that God has a name in mind for each and every one of us. I suspect that most Christian parents probably pray and ask God what he has already named their children. Maybe you didn't, but, but obviously unbelieving parents don't. And the reason I say this, and I'm pondering, and I'm not making a, a statement that I know this is so, but you know, several times in the Bible, uh, God renames people. Abram becomes Abraham, Sarai becomes Sarah, Jacob becomes Israel, Simon becomes Peter, and Saul becomes Paul. And I wonder if maybe that is because God is revealing to these people at the point that they receive his Holy Spirit, he's revealing to them their true name, what God named them as his children long before his parents ever laid eyes on him. You know, in Kenya, our Christian brothers and sisters are given a new name upon their baptism and their confession of faith. So when you meet uh, Kenyan Christians, they will tell you their tribal name, but then they will tell you their Christian name. And most of the time, they just go by their Christian name, which is not unlike what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3. He says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. So there's a new reality, there's a new name, a new identity that comes about in the life of the one who is filled with the Holy Spirit. The question is, and I don't know the answer to this question, is, is that truly a new name or is it a restoration of the original name? You see, John is the name that God has chosen for Elizabeth and Zachariah's child. That's the baby's God-given name. And he'll wear that name from the very beginning, from the outset of his life, for one very important reason. There's a qualifier. Did you catch it? Look at Luke 1, the second part of verse 15. It's very unique. The, the angel says, John will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his birth. Remember, we take on our God-given name and we live into our God-given identity at the point that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. That's why Simon becomes Peter and Saul becomes Paul upon meeting and following Christ. Before the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, these men were literally living under false identities. Listen, have, have you ever said something to yourself like, I just don't feel like myself? Have you ever reflected upon your life and thought, I'm not who I'm supposed to be. I'm not living as, as, as the true me as I'm supposed to be. Have you ever been wrapped up in sin and later felt that the person who was sinning was not the true person you were created to be, like it was somebody else? Have you ever longed to return to that simple person you once were when you were a child? There's a reason for these feelings. Many of us live as strangers to that person God created us to be. We live under a false identity, and many of us have never discovered the beautiful name that God gave us in the womb. 
The gospel tells us that sin is responsible for this, that sin separates us from God. What does that mean? It means that sin separates us from the person that God intended for us to become. Sin separates us from our true identity. Sin separates us from living into our God-given name. Remember, sin, sin is always based on a lie, always. That's what the Bible teaches us. Our enemy is a liar. And one of the things that we get lied to about the most is our identity. And it usually comes in one of two forms. If you are susceptible to pride, then the lie will sound something like this. I am my own man. I am my own woman. I don't need God or anyone else telling me what to do or who to be or how to be. I'll live my life on my own terms. I'll make up my own rules. I decide who I am and what I'm becoming, no one else. You see, that was the lie that was whispered in the garden in Genesis 2. But then many of us are more inclined and more susceptible to shame. And so these are the lies that will run through your mind. That your existence doesn't matter. No one knows or cares that you exist. No one would miss you if you were dead. You are a nobody. You are a failure. You should be ashamed of who you are and how you are. You shouldn't think that you will amount to anything. You were pathetic. You and everyone else would be better off if you were dead. These are the lies of your identity. These are the lies that are whispered into the ear of one who's been crushed by the load of shame due to their own sin or oftentimes for the sin that was inflicted upon them at the hands of others. You see, sin's grip upon our identity is stronger than any vice. Either through our pride or through our shame, sin separates us from this true identity that God breathed into us through this constant barrage of lies. It's important to understand, you know, sin does not create. Sin never has the power to create. It only destroys. Sin is a parasite on all that was created as good. It corrupts the nature of something good until it becomes something altogether other than it was originally intended to be. And some very obvious examples of this would be money and sex and happiness. Money, sex, and happiness is God created and intended. These things are all very, very good. But what does sin do? Sin elevates these things to become a God to us. And with that becomes this parasite that then becomes something completely other than God designed it, and it has the power to destroy us. And this is seen over and over and over again throughout the Bible. The same is true with our identity. The name that God intended for us in the womb is corrupted by sin to such a degree that we are no longer ourselves. That is the human condition. But do not despair. There is still hope. For Luke tells us of another baby that is on the way. And God gives this baby the name Jesus. The name Jesus comes from the Hebrew word Yashima, Yahshua, which means God delivers, God saves. Now make no mistake, there were many, many people before Jesus and during his day who were named Joshua or Jesus. The Israelites had been awaiting a Messiah for many generations, so it was not uncommon at all for people to name their babies Joshua or Jesus in the hopes that they would see the day when the Lord would return, when the Lord would send his Messiah. 
the Jewish historian uh, named Josephus mentions in his writings no less than 12 different people by the name of Jesus. They were men who wore the name of a savior, but saviors they were not. Throughout history there have been many who thought themselves to be saviors, but they all failed. They had name or position or military strength, but they had no power to save people from sin. Many people, if you listen to people's stories, many, many people having found themselves trapped in addictions or depression or shame or any degree of darkness, they have sought their salvation from myriads of would-be saviors. Women who have uh, gone through an abortion or experienced sexual abuse suffer such deep abiding shame that they regularly turn to alcohol, drugs, promiscuity, and even suicide, but there is no savior in these things. Men who suffer from this sense of failure or chronic anger seek salvation in accomplishments, domination, womanizing, physical fitness, or addictions, but there is no savior in these things. There is none that can rescue the human soul from the vice grip of sin, none save one, and his name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a Virgin Mary, and like John, his perfect name reveals his destiny. Listen to Matthew's gospel account of what the angel Gabriel spoke to Joseph in Matthew 121. He says, Mary will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This baby named Jesus changes everything. The very name of Jesus Christ brings light into the deepest darkness. All of history leads up to this one name. All of history revolves around this one name. All of history awaits the return of this one name, Jesus Christ. He is not only the savior for us, he is Emmanuel, God with us. Now notice that the spoken purpose of Jesus' life that is also reflected in his God-given name is that he will save his people from their sins. Do you understand what that means? Do you understand the point of contact that Jesus has with you and with me and with every other person in this world? It's not in your value. It's not in your virtue. It's not in your morality. It's not in your accomplishments. It's in your sin. Your sin is the place where the savior of the world meets you. Picture, if you will, a town. And in this town has come upon the people the most deadly of plagues. It is a disease that has unprecedented pain and, and, and disgusting, contagious realities to it. A, a plague to end all plague, an incurable disease that causes this Now within this town, anyone who would see themselves to be healthy would quickly push and send all of the diseased, the sick and the dying to the very outskirts of town. And now these people are outcast and they are unwelcome, they are despised, they are feared and they are rejected. But now picture the great physician. As he rides into the town, he does not dismount to prattle about with those self-proclaimed healthy people. No, instead, he rides like the wind with a singular mission. He must get to the sick and to the dying. He must live in their compound. 
He will eat from their plates. He will drink from their cups. He will touch them with his hands. And in so doing, he will take on that dreaded, terrible disease with all of its afflictions, with all of the pain, with all of the death, with all the oozing of the skin, with all the disfiguring of the face, with all of the organs turning to mush. He will take all of that upon himself and then with the piercing of his own flesh, he will heal them with every drop of his blood until his life is exhausted because that is what he does. That is why he is. He is the great hero of our faith, but only those who are the outcasts, who are the sin-sick souls, will ever meet this hero because that is where he rides. That is where he goes. That is where he connects with each and every person in our sin. That's what it means when the angel says, you shall name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus said it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Oh, you who are weary and heavy laden with your sin of pride, with your sin of shame, call upon the name of Jesus Christ. It is the name above all names. It is the perfect name. For Jesus is the name, the only name that redeems. You know what it means to redeem something? To redeem something is to take something that was spoiled or corrupted and make it valuable again. It is to restore or recover the original value of what was once good but then turned bad. The name of Jesus redeems our identity. Only Jesus Christ can remove the vice of sin that holds our true name in bondage. It is only the name of Jesus Christ that can break through the lies and reveal the truth. It is only the name of Jesus Christ that humbles the proud and heals the brokenhearted. It is only the name of Jesus Christ that sets people free from shame, from pride, so that we might be forgiven, that we might be filled with the Holy Spirit, and in so doing, that we might know our true name. You see, Jesus is the name that redeems our names. In Jesus Christ, we discover who we were created to be. In Jesus, we discover our true name, a name that has purpose, a name that has a call, a name that has nobility, and a name that was given to us that is ancient before the beginning of time. This is who you are. This is who God created you to be. You know, no one in this room or within sound of my voice should live one more day thinking that your name is insignificant or doesn't matter. Not one of you should live one more day believing that, that you're destined to the same fate as your parents. Not one of you should go on thinking that you were defined by your sin or your shame or your accomplishments. No one should think that, that because you had an abortion, because you committed adultery, because you're addicted to pornography, because you're addicted to any number of things, because you have been self-righteous or you've been hypocritical or you suffer from unforgiveness, no one should think that these sins define who you are. Sin does not have the power to define who you are. Resist the lies. Yield to the name that brings light to that which was concealed in the darkness. Yield to the name that prompts our spirits to kick within us just as John kicked within the womb of Elizabeth 
when Mary and Jesus entered into the room. You must yield to that name that calls you by your name, your real name, with a still small voice. Yield to the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and our King, our Father, our Friend, our Redeemer, our Healer, and our Savior. You ask how, what must I do? There have been others who have asked that question. And I would just point you to Acts 2, 38, 39, and the Apostle Peter, when he responds to a group of people who are just smitten to the soul, what, what, what should we do? And this is what he says, repent. Repent and, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name. In the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins, And then what? And then you will receive the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord God will call. There is only one name that has the power to save, and it is Jesus Christ. Call upon that name now. Receive the power of the Holy Spirit and discover your true name. Will you pray with me? Lord, on behalf of all of those who are weary of living a false identity, of going through this life having no idea who we are but knowing that we are not ourselves, Lord, we repent. We repent of our pride. We repent of carrying this burden of shame, of not believing, of not accepting that we are yours, that from the beginning of time, when we were formed in the secret place, you knew us and you called us by our true name. Lord, we repent for living as those who have forgotten that we are children of the King, that we are those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, that we are new things, that we are restored, we are redeemed. Lord, I thank you for Jesus Christ, the one name that can save us from the sin, that can dispel the lies, that can bring light into the darkness. I pray that we will remember his birth, that we will remember his name, that we will remember what he has taught us, that we will remember how he loved the children and how he healed the lame and made the blind to see how he took such meager resources and fed the masses that we will remember that he was crucified by angry, self-righteous people like us, but that he rose on the third day, that we would never have to live in fear, that we could celebrate who we are as children of God, and that we would never have to forget our name. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.